Everyone, it's good to be here today and have each of you with us this morning to worship together. I hope that you'll be benefited and blessed by the study this morning. I've been a little bit sick this week, so hopefully I'm not going to cough too much. I apologize in advance if I have to take a break there. But uh, been doing a lot of thinking and studying and reading um, about something that's been on my mind since we studied that the book of Thessalonians a while back. There's a passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul's talking to the church there about some of the issues they're having and kind of some back and forth on some of the concepts he's teaching them. And he, you might remember there's a little section there where he's talking about the difference in things being lawful versus beneficial. We may have some freedoms in Christ, but that doesn't mean everything that we would choose to do would be beneficial to you or to others in the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And if you remember back to our study on Thessalonians, I made the argument that imitation in the life of a Christian can be a good thing. And the imitation in the life of a Christian is actually something that we should strive for. We should strive to have others imitate us, and we should strive to imitate others if and as long as they are imitating Christ, and as long as Christ ultimately is the example there and the person that we're following after. And I said, I did a lot of thinking about this at that time and uh, given a lot of thought to it since then, and so I want to uh, start a series of, this morning where we think about the life of Christ, and we think about the interactions that Jesus had with other people. How did he talk to them? How was his attitude? What was his demeanor? How was his speech? What was his motive in how he interacted with people, and what can we learn from those things? And so I'm excited about doing this, and hopefully um, you'll be benefited by this as well. As we think about the interactions of Jesus this morning, I've become convinced as I've studied this and given a lot of thought to this over the past couple of years especially, that this is an underutilized tool in the church. Thinking about the life of Jesus and making a strong and focused effort to, to matching our lives up and patterning our lives after him is an underutilized tool in the church. And so I hope that we can demonstrate that this morning, and as we look at some of these interactions that he's had over the course of his life and his ministry, specifically in terms of how he interacted and dealt with other humans, how he did that, and what was its effect, and all those types of things. And I hope that you'll be convinced of that as well as we look at these things. And I've sort of thought to myself and joked to myself that this is very much going to be the WWJD sermon series, What Would Jesus Do? And you might remember that kind of whole Movement. And I sort of laughed at that at the time because it was, I think, a bit of a religious marketing and advertising tool as much as it was anything, but conceptually, I think, had a lot of merit to it. What would Jesus do in the situation? And when that movement came around, you remember everybody had the bracelets with WWJD on them or a necklace or whatever. And the thought process was, hey, I want to remind myself as I encounter situations and encounter people and as I'm doing something, what would Jesus do? Am I going to be a Christian in how I respond to or interact in this situation? So this is the WWJD sermon series, I guess. What would Jesus do? What would he do? What did he, what did he do 
How did he interact with people? How did he feel about people? How did he treat people? Sometimes he was soft. Sometimes he was gentle. Sometimes he was more firm, depending on who the audience was, what the situation was. There was a lot of context to all these different stories, and it wasn't just a cookie-cutter life. It was, a, it was a life that had meaning, and certainly we can learn a lot from these interactions. And I want to start with the idea of compassion this morning. I think if there's one word that summarizes the life of Jesus, there may not be a better word than a life of compassion. And I think it's pivotal for us if we're going to pattern our lives after Jesus, and if we're going to make a focused attempt to be more like the master, that we have a compassionate heart. And we're going to define that this morning and think about what it really means to be compassionate and how the scriptures show compassion and how we can do a better job of that. I hope that you're benefited by this. And we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 10 that's familiar probably to most people here this morning. We call the man here the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And I want to look at that as we study about compassion this morning. Luke 10 and verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we read about the Good Samaritan, we often don't read this early context of why this story was even told. And I think it's a really critical and important part of that story because there's obviously some very clear and easy lessons to glean from this story about this man. But the context of the story on why it was told to begin with is not something we spend as much time on. So this lawyer stands up and says, what, you know, what do I need to do to have eternal life? which is honestly a fair question. Now, it says this guy was testing Jesus. This was probably a well-educated and, and maybe even somewhat religious man that probably already knew the answer in terms of a scriptural answer to this question. And I suspect that's probably why it's worded like that in terms of him testing Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, certainly a fair question, but in, in terms of our study this morning, the important point I want to make about this is this whole story about this Samaritan man is in response to this question, ultimately. Now, we read this story on how we should deal with other humans and things like that, but the point I want to make is that compassion has a key role in salvation. We talk about salvation issues. Is compassion a salvation issue? Jesus made it one, and that it was a direct answer to this man's question on what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And so as we go through this story this morning about this Samaritan man, don't forget about that, that compassion is key to saving souls. Compassion is key to saving your soul on various fronts, but it's certainly key to spreading the gospel and bringing other people to Christ. So he asked Jesus this question, and listen to this little back and forth here that they have. So Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Pretty straightforward answer, right? Basically, there's just two things. You want to inherit eternal life? Love God with everything in your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the question comes up often, especially to people that aren't familiar with this whole love your neighbor thing. What, you know, what's my neighbor? We think of a neighbor as the people that live to your right and to your left and across the street. Okay, i got to love those people for eternal life. I'll tell you something. I've got a neighbor that's a challenge, and that's a difficult thing to do. And that's a challenge for me because 
Is that my neighbor? Yeah, that's my neighbor. But that's not all my neighbor is, and that is certainly not what he's demonstrating here. We have to find out who our neighbor really is, and that's what this man is. I suspect, again, that he knew the answer to the question, you know, on who, should, who I should love as my neighbor, but it's a human condition, and it's a really key thing in understanding compassion is understanding who our neighbor is. And it really becomes a view of humanity is what it becomes. How do we view other human beings? How do we look at other human beings and how do we value other human beings? What's the value of another human being to us? So what's the lawyer's response to him? Verse number 29, who's my neighbor? The same question we would ask, right? He asks the same question, but it's not a geographical answer. It has nothing to do with the house on the right or the house on the left. It's a human condition. And it's really what he's trying to teach this guy here. So then Jesus tells the story here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So we get this example of these three men, two of which are perceived religious type men. One was a priest, one was a Levite, men that you would think would have a different response to this situation than what we read about and what we're told about it. And then we have this Samaritan man who is the guy that is described as having compassion on this man. And the first two men come along and have a response that they're not going to help this guy. And so the interesting thing here is what is compassion then to us? What does it become? It says he had compassion on him. What is compassion to us? The easy, quick answer is it's, it's an emotion, right? Is it something that we feel? But I hope to demonstrate this morning that it's, that it's more than that. And it's interesting to think about this priest and this Levite as they came across this road because I, you, you can't, you can't expect that they didn't have any feeling at all about this situation. At the very least, something was stirred in them where they noticed it and at least went down the right side of the road. They at least took the other path. What their motives were, we don't have any information on that. We don't have any information on why they made the choices they make or anything. We just know they weren't the ones that had compassion on this man that was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. But the Samaritan man is. So what is compassion? There are characteristics, I think, in this, story, in this story that clearly illustrate that it's much more than an emotion or a sentiment that, that we have as humans, that we feel. It's not, it's not a fleeting thing that comes and goes that we have this thought in our minds about somebody else or some other situation. The Greek word here, for all of you scholarly types, describes it as to have this yearning in the bowels. And if you do any research on that, and I did some, but not exhaustive, but the root word that this word comes from describes it by using some of the internal organs, your lungs and your liver and your, your bowels and those kind of things. And it talks about it, it even, it even equates it in some of the definition type stuff in the, in the uh, dictionaries as, as mirroring the labor pains of a woman, as you know, the, the deep emotion connected to that painful feeling that a woman experiences during labor. And so you can start to have this little bit clearer picture that it's more than this just casual, oh, I feel sorry for them kind of a situation, but it's this, 
thing that stirs within you, and it, you can feel it in your gut. And maybe you've experienced that at some point in your life over a loss or some situation that broke your heart, and you, know, you heard about a situation that somebody was in and how that just grips your heart and tugs on it, and you just, it, it almost has a physical component to it. You can feel it inside. And so it, it's this very deep yearning in the bowels. And it brings out this idea that it just moves us to the very depths of our being. It digs deep in us and requires a response out of us, some kind of a response. You ever been moved that way in your life where you feel it in your insides? Let's look at some examples here. These are small, and I don't mean for this to necessarily um, be where you can read it as much as I wanted to think about the things that Jesus did and the way he was described as he came across these people. If you look throughout the Gospels at these various scenarios of people he encountered, some of the miraculous things that he did where he's interacting with people, almost exclusively he's described as of having compassion on these people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples unto him, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Matthew 20 and 33, they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Mark 1.41, and Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said to him, I will thou, be thou clean. Luke 7 and 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, weep not. All of these scenarios, Jesus encountered these people with a varying degree of problems in their lives. And he had compassion on them. And it moved him and he felt for them. And because of that, he did something about that. See how it's more than a sentiment or a fleeting thought? Think about all the different things here that were at play. I mean, you had him recognizing the fact that these people spiritually were lost, that there was no leadership, that there was no shepherd in their lives. Spiritually, they were lost and hurting. They were sick. They were blind. They were hungry. See the human condition that he noticed and had compassion because of that. Think about Luke chapter 15 when we read about the prodigal son. The compassion that we read about there is this man wasted his life away, asked for his inheritance early, and then went and blew it all and lived his life in such a rebellious way and how he finally came to himself and came home. Listen to how it describes the father. He arose and came to his father, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You think that's just a feeling that he had? It was something that burned deep inside him and talked about him. I mean, he pulled out all the stops for that. He went and got the robe and put it on him and held the feast and called everyone in and said, my son is home. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, and you can read all of these examples through the Gospels, and every single time, even when it doesn't call out explicitly that he had compassion on them, it's evident. It's evident that it was there. And it's so much more than a casual emotion or sentiment. And so the thing that becomes glaringly obvious to me anyway, and hopefully obvious to you, is that compassion requires this response. And it moved Jesus so deeply that it led him to action. 
And I, it's a critical component for us to understand that a Christ-like compassion leads to some sort of response and action, or else it's not Christ-like at all. As we move on in Luke chapter 10, this is how the Samaritan man responded. Remember it said he had compassion on this man on the side of the road. In verse 34, because he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He took care of the wounds. He made sure the man was all right. He used his own transportation to carry this man to the hotel. He used his own money to cover the cost of that and said, Hey, if it takes more than what I've given you, I'll come back and settle up when I come back by. And I want to ask you this morning if you'd be willing to do that. Would you be willing to do that for this man, to use your own car, to pay for it out of your own pocket, to settle up if it costs more than what you expected, and to worry about this man's condition? Would you have done that for him? Would you do that today if you saw somebody in this same condition? And I hope we challenge ourselves to think about the human condition to have enough compassion in our hearts to think about others long enough and challenge ourselves whether we would be willing to do this. Would you put somebody in your own car? Would you use your money? Would you take care of them and go above and beyond to help somebody out? Or when somebody sticks the cardboard in your face at the overpass, do you weave to the right lane? And I don't mean to make the overpass beggar, the poster child of this conversation. That's not a straightforward conversation. I don't, I don't pretend to know the right way to respond to that situation. There's clearly situations where people try to take advantage of others and all that kind of thing. But I do mean to use it as an example to get us to think about the human condition and think about others and get out of ourselves long enough to consider somebody else might need some help in this life and understand that a Christ-like compassion is the key to saving souls. And it should move us to meet the needs of others. We, one time when Bentley was, we were trying to figure out the age for this, and I can't come up with a good age. The boys weren't around, so she couldn't have been more than six. We were at a steakhouse here in Amarillo for dinner one night meeting Tara's parents, and this man walked in who was clearly homeless or a bum or whatever you want to call it, um, was clearly hurting, was clearly dirty, not clean, had clear needs, and he walked into the, wait, the waiting area of the steakhouse, and I had seen this man around town many times, actually, um, all over town, usually in or, in or near a restaurant. Um, he had, you could tell, some physical ailments. He kind of had a brace he wore on one hand and carried, you know, he carried the arm where he knew he couldn't use it well. And this man walked in the steakhouse and began asking people for help, you know, saying he was hungry and looking for food. And, you know, typically, as people do in that situation, we're giving him the cold shoulder. And it was really awkward because usually you're at least walking from your car to the steakhouse and you can choose to go to the right and walk two cars over where you can avoid them or whatever. But this man was just flat out in the waiting room walking around asking people for help. And you could tell everybody in there was uncomfortable. Everybody was telling him no thanks or whatever their excuse was. And it shook Bentley. She was visibly frustrated. She had tears in her eyes, and she grabbed me and said, Dad, we got to help this guy. 
And what do you do when your five-year-old's tugging on your coat, acting like a Christian? You got to go act like a Christian. And we helped and got this guy some food, and I don't know if it was the right thing to do. I don't know if this guy's a total bum and too lazy to go get a job and provide for himself and his family. But I know he said he was hungry. I know he looked apart. I know a five-year-old recognized that he looked apart. And I know that 10 or 15 bucks that we spent to get him some food hasn't cost me any lost sleep the rest of my life. And I learned a pretty good lesson from a five-year-old that day on how to look at the human condition. And that stuck with me pretty strongly over the years. Doesn't mean I know the right answer, as I said, on all those situations. I've been burned by the people asking for money, too, before. But we shouldn't get so jaded that everybody that looks like they need some help, we just want to call them a beggar and a bum or lazy. Because the human condition is real. And I know this. Jesus said the man that helped the beaten guy that stopped and cared for him and cared about him was the man that was his neighbor in this situation. And why is that relevant? You want eternal life? Love your neighbor. And Jesus said that's what this guy was. And the best we can tell from this story, the Samaritan man didn't stop and do a full analysis on the value of this guy, on whether he was worthy to get a handout, whether he should be fed by somebody he didn't know or if he had done enough work or was too lazy to deserve somebody to buy him a meal, there wasn't a big spreadsheet analysis built on this situation. He just saw somebody in need, and he took care of the need, and he helped this guy out. And a Christ-like compassion moves us to meet the needs of other people, and it requires action of us. Listen how it's described in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 16. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Isn't that a fair question? If I'm a person that has something in this life, anything, I don't need stuff. I'm not going hungry. My family is eating at night. And I see somebody that has a need, and I say, I'm not going to help with that need, but I'm a Christian. How can I make that claim? How can I make the claim that I love God and the love of God is in me and shut up the bowels of compassion. It uses the word bowels here, which is very aptly worded in my opinion. That's why I use the King James here. It's a better translation if you look at the definition of all that stuff. The bowels of compassion. If you shut that up, how can you claim the love of God in us? And how many times do we have such a jaded view of all these situations that we do exactly that? Shut the bowels of compassion up and aren't willing to help people out. Let's do better than that. Let's move forward and let our actions show that. There's a quote from this man named St. Augustine. I don't know much about this man. He was kind of an early Christian or Catholic guy that did a bunch of writings. He has a bunch of essays and writings, and uh, a lot of it's pretty reasonable and common sense stuff, but I like this quote. He says, what is compassion but, but a kind of fellow feeling in our hearts for another's misery which compels us to come to his help by every means in our power. That's how I felt that day Bentley was tugging on me. It's like, there's nothing I can do about this except to do something about this. And that's the way he described it here. What is compassion except something that tugs at you so hard that you just feel like no matter what the cost, I've got to help with this. And when I read this, I thought that's how the Samaritan man looks to me as I look back at this story. 
as he came across this guy on the side of the road, this caught him in such a way that he knew he had to help. And parts of that seem so silly because you, the way the man was described, it, it looks like the guy was about to die. And you wonder how these other two men could, could not. And maybe we're not dealing with situations where somebody looks com- like they're about to die. And maybe it's a little harder to discern the line on when you step in and when you don't and when you help and how much you help and all that. But we've got to look for it. We have to make an effort. Christ-like compassion necessitates that we're moved to action. Jesus sums up this whole little story with a question back to the lawyer. And he says, okay, you asked me who's my neighbor. So here's the story. And I want to ask you, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one that showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. The guy kind of had it coming to him in terms of such a simple response and answer because he was kind of testing Jesus in the first place. Here's your neighbor. Here's the guy, here's the guy that showed love to his neighbor. Now you go and be like that. You want eternal life? Remember, that's the, that, that's the question that he's answered. You want eternal life? Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor. Behave like this Samaritan man. When you see somebody in a condition like this man, behave like he did. Go and do likewise. Clearly, the Samaritan man was the one that loved his neighbor. But what are the other two men you know, what are the observation that we make about them? I think it's important to call out something here that, that I think is really critical in this whole conversation about compassion. We've kind of alluded to this so far, but these two religious guys who you wouldn't expect would have passed by and not rendered any kind of aid at all, not been willing to help at all. What's the, what's the conclusion that you can make? I thought a lot about that. And to me, the only conclusion that you can make at that point is that it was selfishness. They either had something better to do. Maybe it was a timeliness thing for them. If they stopped to help, they were not going to get where they were trying or needed to go. Maybe they knew they couldn't render any help in that situation without it affecting their piggy bank, that it was going to cost them some money, hurt their wallet. I don't know what the scenario was, but whatever excuse they could come up with or we could come up with on their behalf, it would boil down to selfishness. It was a selfish view of the world that they didn't stop to help another person out. And we're not told that they're too concerned with their own affairs to help or anything like that, but I think it's the only logical conclusion that you can draw in this situation. I read a story doing some research on this. There was a guy that, um, kind of a preacher that had written an article about it, and he told a story about a man that he knew that was a young executive in Chicago that had got a job working in the financial sector, was a big in the financial markets in Chicago, Chicago Board of Trade or some deal like that. And this guy had done really well for himself and advanced his career, was, you know, making a lot of money at a young age. And he'd gone out and bought this new fancy Jaguar, this big 12-cylinder Jaguar. It was really fancy, would really get after it if he stomped on it and just was really proud of this car that he drove around. And he was driving through his neighborhood in Chicago, and the way, the way they described it is the, kid, the, the guy driving the car was watching in and, out, in and out of cars, making sure no kids were coming, being really careful. 
And he, he looked up ahead, and he saw something, and it, it caught his attention, but he couldn't quite see it. And when he got to that point of the road, all of a sudden, wham, on the side of his car, and throws on the brakes and gets out, and somebody had thrown a brick against the side of his car and put a huge dent in the door and scraped the paint and all that kind of junk. And obviously, this guy's fuming. You know, this is his baby, his pride and joy, and he gets out, and he looks around. There's this kid standing there looking at him. And he grabs the kid by the arms and puts him up against the car. And what are you doing? You, why would you do such a thing? You have no idea how much money that's going to cost you. Now it just goes nuts on this kid, and this kid starts bawling. And when he shuts up long enough to let the kid talk, the kid says, I'm sorry, I didn't know what else to do. Nobody else would stop. My brother fell out of his wheelchair and is hurt and is laying on the road. And he looks over behind the car, and the, the older brother's laying there behind the car. And this kid had no idea how to get help for that, and his idea was to pick up a brick and chunk it at this fancy Jaguar, and it got this guy to stop. And, of course, you know, as any decent human would, this guy felt about that tall now and goes over and goes to the kid and gets the bigger brother and gets his wheelchair set back up, sets the kid, you know, gets him lifted back in his wheelchair, wipes off his cuts and scrapes. And the way he described in the story was that he – felt compelled to get the kid home now, so he walked him back home and, you know, made sure they made, both made it back home safely. And then he had to make the long walk back to his pretty fancy Jaguar with all this on his conscience. But he talked about how this impacted this guy so much that he decided he was never going to repair that dent in his door. And so he just left that dent and scraped up paint in his Jaguar as a reminder that don't get going so much in life and worry so much about yourself that you fail to see the plight of others. And that's exactly how we get with stuff sometimes, that we're, sometimes we need the brick to the side of the face to realize that there's other things going on in life than just the things that we're worried about. And so I thought that was a really good story to kind of illustrate what we're talking about here, but we get so focused on our own life and our desires and our entertainment and our interests that, that we don't have the time for a Christ-like compassion. We don't have the time or the awareness of other people's lives enough to even notice it, much less help with it. And we need the brick to the face or the brick to the side of the car to wake us up on that. You want eternal life? Love your neighbor. Have compassion on someone and make a difference in their life. Let's close with a passage that we made reference to but we didn't read, really. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send, labor, send out labors into his harvest. This is another one for me. Verses 37 and 38 here, I've heard, you know, a thousand times on their own if somebody's doing a study on how we should be evangelistic or how we should, you know, view the field of evangelism and things like that and never in the context of the rest of the story about Jesus or never paid close attention to it. I'll say it that way. But why does he say that about the about the harvest being plentiful and the labors are few. Well, it's because he noticed they were sheep without a shepherd. Well, why did he notice that? Because he had compassion for them. 
he was willing to stop and take a look at the crowds. And you think about the snapshot of the life of Jesus and all the things that he had going on during these travels and these ministries and this geographic area that he was covering, talking to people and doing things. And yet he, had, he took the time to stop and notice people. All these scenarios that we read, he noticed the crowds. He felt for the crowds. He looked and he saw that they had no shepherd. And it grabbed him. It grabbed him enough that he wanted to do something about it. How do you feel about and think about the world today? You know, all the politics that we have and read about, all the polarization between political parties and the divisiveness that is created between human beings, it's difficult to not become jaded toward other humans. I've, there's times that we do stuff, maybe we're, I get drugged to a mall or a store or something I don't want to be at, and it's crowded, and I don't want to be there to begin with, and it's somewhere I don't want to be, something I'm not interested in, and other people there that are interested in things that I'm not interested in, and I'll jokingly say, I hate people. I just take me somewhere there where there's not people. I hate people. And I'm, I'm mostly joking. Most, I should more accurately say I hate Hobby Lobby or something. But it's a jaded view of the world, and it's easy to get that way, especially if it's somebody that doesn't agree with you on things. And it's not a good place to get. It's not a good place to be. So I want us to think about that. How do we think about the world this morning? What do you, even the things that we invest our time in, invest our efforts, our talents in, all those things shape and indicate how we view the world and what we think of that. And we have this tendency toward a tunnel vision of our own lives, doing the school things we need to be at and the school things that our kids are involved in and the extracurricular activities that our kids are involved in, and we got to rush to that and get them to that. And before you know it, we're driving our proverbial Jaguar down the road, and we don't even notice the kid that fell over in his wheelchair. And that's not a Christ-like compassion. And I hope that this morning that we've shown that. It really is a matter of where we're looking, isn't it? And I think that's what stuck out to me as much as anything in doing this study is, you know, it's not even that... Most of the time, it's not even that I'm not willing to help somebody or that I don't want to help somebody. I consider myself a pretty helpful guy. I'm willing to help anybody do anything. Sometimes they have to ask. That's a problem. Sometimes somebody else might have to slap me upside the head and say, can you help with that? And that's where the real problem is. And if we want to build a Christ-like compassion, that involves us removing this selfish component from it and actually being willing to stop and notice the crowds and being willing to see that there's people hurting and people that need help and, more importantly, people that don't have a shepherd and understanding that they're hurting and helpless and understanding that there's an answer to that and understanding that a Christ-like compassion looked at all these people the same way. And Jesus looked at all of those people, and he looked at you and me and had the exact same compassion on us. And thank God that he did. And he looked down from the cross with the compassion that said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he was able to 
back that up with an action, a compassion that moved him enough that he was willing to act on it. And is there any greater love than a man would lay down his life? Is there any better example of compassion that he would look at us and offer everything that he had for that? If you're here this morning and you've never experienced that Christ-like compassion, we want to offer an invitation. And hopefully that's somewhat clear to you this morning that that compassion has been extended toward all mankind. And remember, again, the motive of that was to, to love his neighbor. Can you say that Jesus loved his neighbor? It'd be pretty hard to argue against it. He loved his neighbor enough that he would go to the cross and spill his precious blood for us that we can have forgiveness of our sins. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, we offer an invitation in the the waters of baptism to help you with that this morning. If you're here this morning as a Christian and you have any need that the church can help, maybe maybe you're like me and you're not good at this stuff all the time. Let's do better. Let's be better. Let's focus on Christ. What would Jesus do? I'm not going to repeat that the whole, through the whole course of this series because I don't want it to get branded that way. But it's a really good thing for us to do and test our lives against the Master. And I hope you'll test your life against the Master this morning and understand that we can always do and be better and make the changes that we need to be. If there's anything that the church can do for you this morning, we're going to sing this invitation song. If you would, come to the front as we stand and sing.